Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. My name's Catherine Carr, and this is Relatively, the podcast all about potentially the longest relationships of your life. Uh, that's, that's perfect. <laughs> I'll be bringing siblings together to talk about the connections they have as adults, as well as what it was like growing up together. We could all easily pick up a towel, sniff it, and say not only who had last used it, but where on the body they had used it. <laughs> This week, we're talking to author, journalist and broadcaster Catelyn Moran. I am the oldest and therefore arguably, and I would say scientifically, probably the best. And her little sister, the comedy writer, Kaz Moran. I feel a little bit queasy. Kaz feels a bit queasy. I'm just vaping through it like some kind of a hero. But I'll also talk to them separately to get a more private take on the relationship. I'll do my intimate radio okay, voice then. I'll get the hell out of it. Kaz was f- feminist and clever way before me, so she'd observed that if you were a bright and cheerful girl, that traditionally through history, that was how big families had screwed over their daughters. She sort of modelled herself on Judy Garland <laughs> and sort of plucky Victorian heroines. It was very odd to be depressing 1980s Wolverhampton Council estate. And with the help of our sponsors, Find My Past we'll be delving a little further back into the family history of all of our guests. Yes. What? Yep, yeah, yeah. <laughs> EastEnders. <laughs> You're not my mother! Da, 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 da. <laughs> Brothers and sisters are never straightforward. Catelyn, Kaz and their six other siblings grew up in Wolverhampton. The sisters have since written a TV series about their childhood called Raised by Wolves. We talk about that, about libraries, buses, thwarted ambition, Carl Jung, the ornaments your nan had, and the science of sibling roles. But Catelyn, who took part in this episode while on holiday with Kaz and all the rest of the siblings, who at the time had come down with a sickness bug, started by listing the other brothers and sisters in the Moran tribe. It's Claire, then John, then Corin, then Cheryl, then Jim, then Joe. And I only pause because none of us call each other by those names. We all have a variety of nicknames so embedded that I think one of us actually has that name on their passport now. It must be like almost handbook worthy joining your family as a partner. Don't you you need some sort of diagram or? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of kind of relationship admin in the early stages of a relationship where you have to sort of go, boom, here's the family history. And there's this one and this one and another. Yeah, so I am Buzmik or Yuwum. My real name isn't Kathleen Moran, it's Catherine Moran. And I changed it to Kathleen when I read a book by Jilly Cooper at the age of 13 and thought Kathleen sounded more like Irish and kind of cool and aspirational than Catherine. Um, I won't but, take offence at this point, but yeah, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> Soz. And it was spelt with a C as well. I think it looks beautiful, but I aspired to being more Celtic and real and pretend I'd come from Ireland. Kaz uh, is Kaz. Claire is Wiener. John is Eddie. Corin is Cole. Cheryl is Gesmo. Jimmy's Jimmy, but also uh, Merlin the Happy Pig, and Joe's Joe Fish. <laughs> I mean, I'm sp- I'm sure there's a story behind each and every one of those, but perhaps we could focus on yours. Where did your nickname come from? So Buzmik is because uh, as the eldest, I was the first to develop bosoms. Um, so it was <laughs> it's quite simple. <laughs> it's big news in the big news <laughs> in the town. 
<laughs> to all the other siblings are like, what's that? Okay, you are now Buzmic. Um, and then woman, yeah, I'm called you woman because I was the first one to become a woman. So the main thing that I would have shouted at me uh, would be, you woman, where are the scissors? There are sort of friends of the family who take great pride in the fact that they have met all the siblings. It's like kind of getting all the, the trading cards in a in a trading card game. A Blue Peter badge moment kind of thing. Yes, yeah, a Lifetime Achievement Award. <laughs> so what I didn't ask you individually and um, would be remiss of me not to have at the beginning of the podcast for people who haven't seen Raised by Wolves or read about your childhood, I wonder if you could sort of describe really basically what your childhood was like and what made it different, please. Well, we were, there were eventually eight of us. We were all home educated. So I had two years of school. You had five? I was there till 11. So the cutoff date was 86. So whatever age you were at that point, that's where we all came yeah. out of school. So whatever your knowledge was at that point, if you'd learned to read and write, great, good for you. If you hadn't, good luck. And then, <laughs> so yeah, we were in a three bedroom council house on a quite dull and not scary council estate in Wolverhampton. Good bus service though, 512 and the 513 every 20 minutes. Yeah, and very were, good bus. There were three very good libraries within walking distance. So one of the things that we wanted to do in Raised by Wolves was just show working class sort of council estate life not being all scary and like kind of like rats and people on drugs, like having sex on burning mattresses and kind of like beating <laughs> each other up. Most council estates aren't like that. They're like brilliant provision of housing post-war for people who didn't have much money there's something really beautiful about the idea of like nothing too good for the working man why should these people not just have a house with a back garden and a bus Mm. and also buses to libraries I mean that's a theme on this podcast a lot of kids Bobby Siegel and his brother same thing every Saturday to the library Nick and Jill Hornby same thing every Saturday once a week lightweights yeah we went every day (laughs) yeah but they were schooled oh yeah yeah Yeah. again stuff lightweights I still judge them like sometimes we go twice a day because I used to get really paranoid that someone might have returned a book I wanted to read and it might be on the returns cart and not have been put on the shelf yet getting of the teenage library ticket was like a big kind of life event wasn't it the green card the adult uh, area now yeah and Kaz was the first person I knew who had to demarcate the value of uh, reading a book with your eyes and listening to audio books there was one point where you were like no I've, I've, I've read all of them with my eyes. It wasn't an audiobook. <laughs> so when you were growing up with all these siblings in your house in Wolverhampton, like often the oldest daughter, and I hate to be gendered about it, but it's true, turns into the second mum if there's a big clutch of children following after. I wonder whether that was the case in your household, unusual as it was. Uh, very much so. I mean, my mother was constantly pregnant and my dad was constantly, I want to say lazy. He seemed to be sort of, primarily horizontally based person he just liked watching the Grand Prix <laughs> and also I'd read a lot of 19th century novels about cheerful hard-working girls who simply by being fabulous homemakers would uh, overcome terrible deprivation and marry Mr Rochester um, <laughs> only after his house had burned down and he'd gone blind because if you're working class you won't get a whole Mr Rochester <laughs> you only get him when his eyes have been burnt out. She sort of modelled herself on Judy Garland and sort of plucky Victorian heroines. It was very at odds with kind of, you know, depressing 1980s Wolverhampton Council estate in the midst of, you know, economic gloom and cultural turbulence. She was almost a woman out of time in some ways. I think she saw Summer Stock. I think it's a Judy Garland and Gene Kelly film about them putting on a show under difficult circumstances. And I think that sort of went deep for her. And then much of her life has been about putting on a show under difficult circumstances. So I was very much kind of like, I'll be good and shining and I will triumph. And I also really did and still do enjoy solutions to things. So I'd always be like, 
cutting down a cardboard box and attaching a shoelace to it and then making it into a new shoe storage system that you could pop under a kitchen unit. Or there was one diary entry that was like, beautiful day today, relocated the deep fat fryer from the worktop on the left to the worktop on the right. Looks fabulous. <laughs> um, so that was the level I was at. Kaz was playing a really different game. Kaz was feminist and clever way before me. So she'd observed that if you were a bright and cheerful girl, that traditionally through history, that was how big families had screwed over their daughters. So she became brilliantly surly <laughs> and, non- and non-cooperative. So for instance, we were all enraged by the fact our parents, they would always be asking, oh, make us a cup of tea, make us a cup of coffee. And I would like make a cup of coffee and serve it on a tray with a flower picked from the garden because that's what they do in novels. Kaz, meanwhile, would just make it using the hot tap and spit in it so they never asked her again, which was <laughs> a much cleverer thing to do. <laughs> And what about you? How would you describe yourself when you were growing up? What was your character like in contrast, perhaps, to that? I was extremely grumpy, sarcastic, very depressed, very quiet, extremely introverted, which I remain to this day. It's almost like we were casting ourselves in a sitcom. You know, the other two characters you would put together, the the grumpy, sarcastic one, and then the have-a-go hero. So, yeah, we were laying out some comedic archetypes there, I think. I always presumed that a BBC film crew were filming through the kitchen window going, look at this girl. (laughs) She comes from such unpromising beginnings, but the cheerfulness in her heart enchants all that see it. (laughs) (laughs) And yet, have you been great friends all the way through, even when you were being sort of your best little woman self and she was being something else entirely? There were like proper full-on fights and stuff, but there's a weird, and I think a lot of people have this with their siblings, there's a kind of arguing slash bickering you do that feels really comforting and pleasurable and like an exchange of love. And similarly, you can very often get into a mindset where you kind of want your sibling to wrestle you or hit you. You're deliberately provoking them. And at the point where you're finally rolling around on the floor, it feels like love. There's no kind of real proper anger to it. I'm sure when Kaz tells you this bit, she'll be like, no, and I found it very, very upsetting. And I've just been in therapy ever since. It was horrible. <laughs> The constant bickering and the sort of like piss taking that we have in our family is my my happy place. I don't know, there's a certain joy to it. There's always that comfort of kind of, you know, you know your sibling role. And so I would sort of sink into my curmudgeonly manner and that would just give her more energy in a way. And she would sort of live out all, all of my extrovert leanings and I would live out all of her introvert leanings. And so we sort of, we were sort of a yin and yang to each other, I guess. I've never heard it described like that before on this podcast. And I think that's really interesting that you sort of lean into it as a, almost service to your sibling yeah yeah sort of facilitating each other and kind of we were so immersed in television and sort of television archetype and you do almost take on a sort of slightly parodic role especially when you're a teenager it's quite fun to just be like okay well I'm just going to give you the grumpiest surliest meanest sarcastic version of a, a grumpy teenager and then yeah that sort of gave Kate life to uh to be the exact opposite Mm. Um, in that that never-ending search for kind of what your what your role is in a in a big family because you know a lot of those spots have been taken so you kind of have to fight for for how you position yourself what your brand is as a as a sibling. It is a, a well-known thing in sibling psychology apparently that it's like there's labels and roles on the table and once one is taken it's taken and the way that siblings totally. think about it is like you're the funny one shit okay I'm I'm going to be the this one and you can't Literally this but you can split what? the role it's so absurd. It's absurd. But that's why in like big families, and this is why I'd be really interested to see a study of this in Victorian families where sort of like, you know, 10 was the norm because apparently there are five major personality types. So once you get to like the the, the sixth child, you've either got to double again. up and go around again or start inventing <laughs> new kinds of people. 
And how do you think she would describe you? Would she describe you exactly like that, do you think? I think she would say that I was basically that I'm toad of toad hall. I'm just this kind of cheerful thing, just going hurrah. Every so often when I go down, I go down hard and then everybody has to rally around me and be like, it's okay. (laughs) But yeah, just this kind of blustering idiot, which I really like because the rest of the time I think of myself as this kind of tortured intellectual, just really trying to see into the future and just take humanity with me in my bare hands. And then within the family, I'm just like, pop, pop. (laughs) Also literally, because I'm a very gaseous person and uh, I'm the one in the family that will like walk around naked. I, I will fart very loudly. I'll start a conversation about cystitis. Like I'm a kind of, disgustingness engine everybody else has better manners let's face it and did you have a choice but to be kind of known intimately like that in a house full of kids like there's not much space if there's that many children in the house or were some people fighting for privacy and just sort of dying for a room of their own well Kat was fighting for privacy definitely not least because I would read her diary and then leave notes in the margin which she then would read my diary and leave notes in the margin excellent note edits <laughs> yeah, there was, yeah which which was the basis of us starting to write scripts together 20 years later but um there was one very tortured entry I wrote in my uh, diary about how I fancied this boy called Lee Kaz just wrote in red felt tip pen next to this entry about how much I loved him and how beautiful he was and how he looked so much like um, Luke in Star Wars. She just wrote, he's a donkey in red felt felt tip pen in my diary. (laughs) She was right. (laughs) Yeah, it was very much a house with no personal space. I mean, we were all sharing bedrooms for a very long time. There were no lock on the bathroom door. So privacy was in short supply rather I had a kind of horrible old man's suitcase that we'd got from a jumble sale that had a, I think it, I don't know if it had a lock, but you could sort of like close the catch. And I felt like that was maybe some sort of privacy. I would like to think that there were some of my diaries that she didn't read. It was very, very transgressive, but there was something a bit fascinating about kind of getting into your your siblings' inner thoughts. And then, of course, as soon as we became aware that everyone was reading each other's diaries, they became quite performative and we would lay traps for each other in them and you were aware you were writing for an audience. And, you know, perhaps that's what shaped us as as the writers we went on to become. I wondered when you wrote Raised by Wolves and you agreed, obviously, between you, the parameters, what was up for grabs and what wasn't, the truth, the extent of the truth that you would tell, what that process was like and obviously the stuff you've kept back and what that felt like to decide what to tell and what not to tell or maybe it's all out there I don't know well I mean I guess we were very aware it was a comedy and so we've written an entertainment angle that probably wasn't present all of the time back in the day it'd be very easy for that sitcom to be like Ken Loach you know we could have gone full kind of misery memoir dead kestrel at the end of it mm. again people like crying on burning mattresses on a, on a sort of like on a terrible estate i don't know that i did ever cry on a burning mattress um like I, that would also have been slightly disingenuous i cried on a wet mattress because the dog used to piss on my mattress yeah, pretty yeah, much yeah, every night yeah, so yeah. yeah that's less dramatic though isn't it yeah. crying on a Quite funny mattress. though, yeah. trying to dry a, a, piss, a dog piss stained mattress with, with like a, a with a very underpaired hair dryer <laughs> yeah. that would frequently overheat. Yeah, that's the, that's that's a very key sound of my adolescence. The sound of like a a dying hair dryer ineffectually just kind of warming a huge yeah. patch of urine. We did picture raised by wolves episode, which didn't go anywhere. It was called the two towers. Oh yes, which was <laughs> instead uh, of the two towers, yeah, <laughs> reference to Lord of the Rings, the two towers. And we were like because towels were a big issue. They were constantly damp. They were constantly had intimate smells on them from other people. We never washed them enough. We could all easily pick up a towel, sniff it and say not only who had last used it, but where on the body they had used it. Like, kind of, we were like towel yeah. experts. Yeah. That's disgusting. Oh, yeah. mother. I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's 
dad's balls. I know that's male. Yeah, they kind of like, yeah. We There, there seemed to be only two tails and they were always both damp and really full of bugs. Are you always able to be honest with each other? Does, has that sort of lasted? Well, I think we're all very wary of people don't really confront each other head on. We've read a lot about psychology, kind of like a lot of us are deep into sort of Jungian theory. More more than any other family I know, we've studied huge amounts about psychology and about the way that groups work, about family dynamics. And then on top of that, because we didn't go to school, we were completely isolated from society. So we only had ourselves to study as if we were on some desert island and we were the tribe that we were studying. And then when we went out in the world and suddenly started meeting people again, it was such an overwhelming shock. And everybody was so different to us that I think we then have spent the rest of our lives basically going, wow, have you met people? They're different. We need to figure them out because <laughs> they're thinking about things in a really different way to us. And unless we figure this out, we will be alienated from society forever. This season of Relatively is sponsored by Find My Past, the online home of the 1921 census. In 1921, life in England and Wales could be tough, but there are lots of examples of humour in the census records. Constance Bernard Fitzhammond listed her three young children's occupations as getting into mischief and getting into more mischief, and for her 11-month-old baby, occupying feeding bottles. Did your grandparents add a quirky note when they completed the census? View the record itself at findmypass.co.uk to find out. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And what about early memories? What's your sort of earliest memory of being sisters together? It's tough because I have so, I have an absolutely appalling memory and I have very, very little (laughs) memories for my my childhood. Um, I mean, I'm sure psychologists would think there was a reason for that. But um, yeah, I I remember we would go and visit my nan who lived in um, Wombun and she had a sort of little bungalow and it was like a whole other world. She'd let us go in her bedroom where everything was like very dark wood furniture and had doilies on it. And she had these like glass swans. I think you remember every single thing you see at that age. So I can remember every single one of her ornaments. She had a an owl that changed colour according to the weather. Uh, yeah, the glass swans, like she had beautiful cups with beautiful uh, roses and stuff painted on them. Because there was just, ne- there was never anything sort of precious or special in our house because everything was just a kind of moving chaos of tat and food and clothes and stuff. And so... The idea that there would be an object that would be in a place um, where we would sort of go over very reverentially and sort of look at these beautiful glass swans. And it was us <laughs> together having to it's like going sort of through the wardrobe into Narnia. Yeah. That was our thing. And it was our special place that we would go. Is it possible to sort of say whether you're more resilient or less resilient or whether you reject that word? Because it's a bit of a ugh word. But do you think your upbringing made you braver and stronger or has been a kind of barbed gift? It's difficult. I mean, for me, it's worked out 
well in that it was lucky that I turned out to be someone who is generally fine being on their own and being allowed to just read and then to write. Uh, but I think I think our family has a very strong awareness that even though we are all very strong individuals, we are also a collective item. Like a lot of us look so similar facially that mm-hmm. if I'm in the car and I look in the rearview mirror, I cannot tell if I'm looking at my own face or one of my two other sisters. Every time we take a group photograph, people will sit around and look at it afterwards and go, which one am I? <laughs> like I once watched my brother jump into a swimming pool and then just disappear from view. And then when his head finally surfaced, he went, I've forgotten. Am I one of the ones that can swim? So there's this just idea that we're a collective entity. So however I feel about my childhood, it, it's only one eighth of the actual view of it. I'm very aware that everybody had different sort of experiences and stuff. So, and I'm more respectful of their views of what happened than than my own really because I think I it was oh it I was one of the favored children and it was okay for me um okay. but for others it was it was it was a, a, a less pleasant experience let's put it like that so I'm so it's like the union it's like one out all out if one of my siblings has a view I, I will adopt that view and, and step behind them it's really interesting I've never heard anyone explain it quite like that but I guess as with so many families, as I've learned on this podcast, each family is like its own experiment. I, oh, thought God, they were, yes. I thought they were kind of cookie cutter families out there and that it would be amazing to get some that kind of deviated from that. But then I've learned that every single family deviates from what you think is normal. Nobody Which is why it's crazy. I mean, you, you know, now I'm a parent, like kind of the idea that two human beings without any kind of training or license <laughs> or genetic <laughs> checkup <laughs> or any real discussion about kind of like, you know, the histories of mental and physical illnesses in their families can just start creating people. Yeah, and then right. and then on top of it, in our family, because we were home educated, and just sort of people weren't coming in and out of the house, it was a very concentrated experiment. Like kind of the only input we had into ourselves was either the library, and you know we, for a long time we didn't have a TV, so the only input was ourselves and books. It's like a puddle that had just been baked in the sun. Like kind of at the end of those five years, kind of whatever whatever microorganisms sort of mentally and emotionally and creatively were in that puddle, they'd really been boiled down to their essence. <laughs> I'm interested by what you said that you delved into some Jungian psychotherapy because I heard and I've read a bit, but I've heard that Jung said that I think it's one of the greatest tragedies a child could endure is the unlived lives of their parents or unrealized dreams of their parents. Yes. Well, that's very, I mean, yeah, I, I have, as the young people say, deeped on that quite a lot because my father, his sort of origin, his whole, of the, the story we were brought up with was that he had been in a band for a while. He'd been in a band as a teenager He'd run away from home. He was a drummer. They toured all around Germany, sort of following the footsteps of the Beatles. They'd got a record deal and like they almost made it. And then apparently they had this huge round broke up. So as we were growing up, the myth was that at some point he would like get the band back together or that he would go solo. He was very inspired by the career of Phil Collins because Phil Collins had been in a band, Genesis, and then mm-hmm. was very successful as a solo artist in the 80s and had also been a drummer. So he was constantly recording these five same songs over and over again. And every year he'd send them off to the record companies. And every year we would think that this would be the year that he would be signed. And finally, we would go from being on benefits in this tiny council house in Wolverhampton to being millionaires. To the point where I started to learn the names of all of Bob Geldof's children, because I presumed that as my contemporaries, we would soon move to London and they would be my friends. And then around about the age of 13, when I realized that he wasn't going to make it, like that this was it, that was when I started writing a book. Because I was like, well, I will need to earn money because like this isn't going to happen. And I sort of realise now that this sort of this idea that like that you that entering the creative industries and making money was the only way out if you were working class. My dad would always say the only way you can make your way off a council estate is either you're good at football 
or like you become a pop star. And then when I, when I started becoming a writer, it was like, oh, you found a third way. <laughs> That's a third way. It's an amazing presence of mind to have as a 13-year-old, but I wonder as a significantly older woman now, you know, middle-aged yourself, you can relate to him and there's real heartbreak. There's such tragedy in that story. And and I think when we see our parents as contemporaries, it's it's almost unbearable sometimes. When you grow up, the, the house that you grow up in, you grow up inside your parents' emotions, basically, don't you? You grow yeah. up inside your parents' regrets and hopes and you don't realise that that's just the atmosphere in your house because that's your whole world. So, yeah, I was very aware that his longing to get back out of Wolverhampton and get back down to London and make money and, like, be in the creative industries again, like, kind of that was that was why it was a viable option for me. And the the relief that he got when I started earning money, I could see that. I think also maybe pain, because I think he realised, oh, well, that is it. It's the next generation now. Like, my slot has finally gone. Mm. So it was sort of, it was quite, it was quite complex. Catelyn was talking about Jungian psychology. She talked a lot about your dad and his hopes to be a musician and to make it and what that created, what atmosphere that created in the house in terms of, what you guys thought was possible or what you needed to do. I wonder how you internalised that or responded to that. I became very, very frightened when I was about sort of 12, 13 of kind of like, well, because I'm not at school, I'm not going to get any qualifications. And I, when I would go to the local quick save with my my mum to buy the seven pounds of cheese that we bought every week, uh, of which I was eating quite a large quantity, <laughs> they would have a liquor save booth in the corner, which was a sort of screened off plastic area where you would you would buy your cheap alcohol and I would think that is where I'm going to end up that will be my job not that there's anything wrong with working in a liquor safe booth but I was kind of like okay that's that's as far as I'm going to go I'm going to go 15 minutes away from the home um, unless I do something and my parents response to that was always well why don't you do what Kate did you know and I was like but I, but I, but I can't go be a presenter on uh, channel four like that you know that's not the, the career options I want something that isn't working in the liquor safe booth or being a television presenter and journalist um there has to be another way I then went down the road of kind of getting an education and and going to university yeah I mean I think it was harder for her because I mean ask her to talk about it but I remember feeling really bad because when I you know started earning money as a writer at like the age of 15 that was when I got the book contract I knew that she wanted to be a writer as well and the, 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 it felt to me and you must ask her about this that the whole family was like oh well Kate's a writer now it was like well we've got a writer Finally, on your dad, the thing that strikes me as really unusual is that he had these two ways of leaving where you were um, and you found a, th- a third way. But he also, as well as the world being small and you living inside his aspirations and his dreams and all of those things, he actually, with his dreams, perversely opened up the world to you. He showed you the opportunity, even though he hadn't managed to take it for himself. You were aware of it. I'm guessing lots of kids in similar situations have no idea that creative industries is a way out. Yes. I mean, that was lucky that he knew that, but it was also a double-edged sword. I think his desperate... I mean, the thing I remember the most is from the age of 11 onwards. I knew I wanted to be a writer from the age of 11. Mm. And uh, I would sort of mention this and he would do these... He's a preacher man. You don't really have conversations with him. He just says stuff and he does big, inspiring speeches that can often be overwhelming, particularly if you're 11. Um, And he would just do these huge speeches that would get angrier and angrier, just going, well, just do it. You keep saying you want to be a writer. Just do it. Like, I see you there. You're sitting on your ass. Have you written anything today? Well, no, the book's not going to get written on its own. And by the end of these speeches, I would literally be weeping, literally going, but I'm 11. I can't write a book now. And it seemed incredibly unfair. Like I was filled with this burning injustice that he thought I was lazy for not having written a book at the age of 11. Um, 
but I now see, and it was horrible, and I would never do that to my children, but I also see that he was trying to convey the reality of what it's like to be on benefits on a council estate in Wolverhampton. It was like, well, unless you do do something extraordinary and start really early, you are going to be stuck here. And um, I think that's one of the hardest things about if you if you come from like, you know, a poor family, a working class family, it's really hard not, in a way, you're doing your children a disservice if you don't make them scared because you do need to make them aware of the massive odds of them succeeding from where they are. If you're in a bad postcode, if you're in a backwater, chances are you're not going to make it. So you will have to do something extraordinary. And in order to do something extraordinary, you have to be quite unhappy and quite pressurized. Um, I'm sure he hadn't like worked out this technique <laughs> in quite the way that I've now understood it through a lot of therapy afterwards. But um, yeah, I mean, that was the massive favor he did with me was make, was make me astonishingly anxious and terrified from the age of 11 that I should do something quickly. Um, not something that I've passed on to my children. <laughs> One of the things that she said was when she did get her book deal, I think she was 15, that she's she felt guilty then, she feels guilty now, that that role was almost swiped off the table. Everyone's like, oh, well, she's the writer. And she said it, it it's hard because you write too, you both write, and yet it felt like that was gone and maybe it felt like that was gone for you. And that must have been hard. It wasn't sort of long after that that she she sort of started presenting on television and stuff. There was a sort of a publicness to that that never really appealed to me and that sort of suited her extrovert ways. Mm. But, you know, there's definitely it's there's that whole thing about kind of, you know, you're in the shadow of your, you know, people who've got kind of very successful parents or that you're sort of living in the shadow of that and how do you deal with it? And you've got to kind of come to terms with it and have a relationship with that. And, you know, are you going to kind of go in the exact opposite way because that's how you rebel or do you kind of embrace it? I wasn't serious about writing for quite a long time. I sort of went off to university and studied biology and, you know, it hadn't ever really occurred to me that I would, I would be a writer now, probably, you know, we, we do work on the same sort of project sometimes, but yeah, we are very kind of different, I guess, in what we do choose to write. I very much like to sort of be in the shadows as a kind of would-be puppet master hiding in the shadows and pulling the strings, whereas she's very much kind of, you know, prepared to be out and seen and be speaking in the world. The bottom line about Kaz is she's always been funnier. Like, she is genuinely a stole-cold genius. I can remember when she was three and I was five, she came into the room in her nighty and started doing this literal stand-up comedy routine. And everyone was crying, laughing. And I remember in my kind of dolorous five-year-old way going, she's the funny one now. My time is over. <laughs> and I've always felt like that about her. Like, she's the one that I bow down to. And if I can make her laugh, I know I've succeeded. <laughs> I mean, it's very sweet that she cares whether she can make me laugh. We all, I think, as a family, have a very sort of shared sense of humour. You know, it's kind of been a training ground for all of us, like, if you can make each other laugh, you know, and there are so many of us and kind of there is that joy. It's almost like kind of, you know, we're all doing our own little bits around the dinner table to see who can get the, the best gag. There's definitely funnier even than me and Catelyn and, you know, uh, in the family, there are comedy master siblings. <laughs> like a special ninja unit they're not working so hard i guess me and Catelyn will have a sort of bit of patter but they will just be you know naturally just coming with an absolutely killer one-liner that we could have spent weeks and weeks trying to trying to write and wouldn't come up with and you know they don't have their whole ego invested in it unlike me and Catelyn, who were probably slightly slavish to getting a laugh 
So this podcast is all about kind of nuclear families, brothers and sisters, mums and dads, and where we came from in our house, if we shared a house when we were younger. But we're also interested in kind of wider family stories, which is why Find My Past kindly has been digging into the Moran family family tree. And when we emailed about this, you did say there's a lot of potato farmers or a lot of potato <laughs> yeah, <laughs> feature. Yeah. And I thought, amazingly, they managed to go back all the way to the 1730s with your family tree um, to your great great grandparents William and Mary Anne Height. Uh, Mary Anne's maiden name was Booty. They had six children including Reginald and Reginald um, went to school uh, in the 1730s, 1740s in the Cambridge area. They worked as agricultural agricultural labourers so you weren't too far off there. So, God, so they were potato farmers on both sides because yeah. like on the Irish side, on dad's side, it's literally wall-to-wall potato farmers. Like yeah, we've got... I don't think they're farmers. I think they were digging up those potatoes for money. For other people, yeah. for the English. Yeah. But then, so, so this is on our mother's side you're talking about and they were potato farmers too. I mean, I wouldn't want to say potatoes genuinely, maybe, but... That's yeah. a big spud area, East Anglia. It's flat and it's full of potatoes. That's our heritage. Right? Right there. But the sweetest story, and I think this fits in terms of you being feminist radicals, which is how um, Kaz described you, Catelyn, as a kind of radical in your optimistic attitude that you assumed when you had no right to, really, was the way that she put it, um, is all about Carrie um, Rosina Coe. And she is your grandmother's mother. So her daughter, Phyllis, is your grandma, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So she was widowed. Uh, was Carrie when your grandmother was just a few months old so back in those days that's in 1911 normally you'd go and find another bloke right because you think this is pretty terrible I don't have any money and now my husband's died and instead and I love this she thought sod that and she went and opened a glass and china shop in Sudbury and was still running it yeah in 1939 at the age of 65 and I quote she took a very different approach to life than most widows of her generation instead of remarrying she opened a business it would have been somewhat familiar territory for her as her parents were involved in furnishings and drapery This is why I feel so happy in like the crockery department of John Lewis. Yeah. This is like, this is deep <laughs> genealogy, right? Yeah. Like literally, that's so nice. I love that she had a little razzy shop and she didn't need no dude. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. So finally, um, and I'm sure this will be easy and maybe you have many ways to answer. Um, if you needed to wind up Kaz, like in a heartbeat, what button could you press to make her really annoyed really quickly? Oh God. Um, well, she was very quick to tell the story of how when Young went to visit Freud, uh, Young was working on some deep theory about what annoys people. And he decided that the best way to annoy Sigmund Freud was to get a tea towel and keep whipping him on the ass with it. <laughs> Whilst going, I just want to see how you react. I just want to see how you react. So I imagine not only because that would be really annoying, but also that I would try and do it in the voice of Young and also that it was her fact and anecdote that she knew. So that would be a three-way wind-up, I think. <laughs> well, I, I think what would annoy me about that is that that didn't famously happen. And so the, inaccu- the historical inaccuracy would then immediately wind me up. So uh, that's, that's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I think what used to really, really wind her up was ignoring her um, because it was very hard to achieve because we were in such a small area and she would there was a sort of phase where she was like had started music journalism and she would be very excited about bands and would sort of come into my room try and connect with me about music and just 
I was just the coldest, most unreceptive, um, very much like go away and let me just be depressed in this room. I think she wouldn't, I don't know, she wouldn't really get annoyed. You would just be kind of like, but but why? Why don't why don't you want to to bond with me? And I think that was probably quite soul crushing. I would imagine, which is exactly what I intended to intended <laughs> to be at the time. That's unbearable. Yeah. Or if someone questions my generosity. So on this holiday, I brought like ten panettoni because we're going to have a panettoni tasting World Cup. If Kaz just looked at me and went, "Only 10? then that would destroy me and she would know that that had destroyed me i would would immediately go out and make another panettone so yeah and she wouldn't want the panettone she just knows that's my sweet spot for for pain thank you to catelyn and kaz and thank you too for listening. Um, I'll start asking Caitlin about going, Catelyn, about going to your gran's house. Yes. Which one? Shit nan or good nan? I think good nan, because she had glass swans you were allowed to go and pick up. Oh, oh yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good nan, yeah. And a huge thank you to our sponsors, Find My Past, who are offering you the chance to start your family tree for free. Head to findmypast.co.uk to find out more. That's findmypast.co.uk. Enormous thanks as well to Tanita Tickerham for letting us use this amazing song. Additional research this season by Rachel Oakes and sound design, as always, by Nick Carter at mixonics.com. We'll be back next week with more sibling stories to share. There's a good tradition of love and hate Staying by the fireside There's a good tradition of love and hate Stand by the fireside, another rain may fall Your father's calling you, you still feel safe inside Only your ma's too proud, your brother's ignoring you You still feel safe inside oh, Was it solo, was it yesterday, was it true for you? Cause while all the rest have taken time, it's didn't you Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 